Chapter Fifteen of the Mohawk Valley. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Roger Moline. The Mohawk Valley: Its Legends and Its History by W. Max Reed. Chapter Fifteen: The Joseph Brant of Romance and of Fact. The late A. G. Richmond of Canajoharie who was curator of the New York State Museum at the time of his death, was very much interested in the early history of the Indians of the Mohawk Valley, and had been able to make a very complete and valuable collection of Indian relics. He acknowledged that it was his hobby, and his private correspondence was embellished with a small vignette, representing an old woman with a pointed hat, riding on a broomstick, with the legend, We all have our hobby. From the frequent recurrence of the name of Sir William Johnson in these pages, you will undoubtedly infer that he is my hobby. But he is not, except incidentally. For the hobby that I claim or acknowledge is the early history of the Mohawk Valley and the location of early Indian villages east of Schoharie River. However, as my avowed object is to place on record all available history of this section of New York, the prominent individuals who were connected with its early history must necessarily often be brought forward. Perhaps there is no name that is as often spoke of in connection with Sir William Johnson and his family as the name of Brant, Joseph Brant. During the Revolution, from 1775 to 1780, Brant and his Senecas was a name which paled the cheek and made mothers convulsively clasp their helpless infants and caused many a strong man's muscles to grow rigid and grasp, with anxious look, the trusty rifle or the ever-present hunting knife in his belt. In Benson J. Lossing's Field Book of the Revolution, we find the following account of this noted Indian warrior, and as other records seem to agree with it, it has been accepted as, in the main, correct. Joseph Brant, Thyenda Nagia, was a Mohawk of pure blood. His father was a chief of the Onondaga nation, and had three sons in the army with Sir William Johnson under the great Mohawk chief, King Hendrick, in the Battle of Lake George in 1755. Joseph, his youngest son, whose Indian name Thyandanaga signifies a bundle of sticks, or in other words strength, was born on the bank of the Ohio in 1742, whither his family had gone on a hunting trip. His mother returned to Canajoharie, Indian Castle, with two children, Mary or Molly, and Thyandanaga. His father, Tahowag Wengaragquin, a chief of the wolf clan of the Mohawk, seems to have died in the Ohio country. His mother, after her return, married an Indian called Carabogo, news carrier, whom the whites named Barnett, which by contraction became Barnt, and finally Brant. Thyendanaga was called Joseph, and was known as Brant's Joseph, or Joseph Brant. Sir William Johnson sent young Brant to the school of Dr. Wheelock of Lebanon, Connecticut, and after he was well educated for those days, employed him as secretary and as agent in public affairs. 
he was employed as missionary interpreter from 1762 to 1765 and exerted himself for the religious instruction of his tribe. Lossing's explanation of the manner in which Thayendanaga got his name of Brant is quite ingenious and may be true, but the name Brant, a Mohawk Indian, appears in a conference held in Albany in August 1700 in connection with King Hendrick and again in an Indian deed, also in connection with King Hendrick, dated July 10, 1714, which conveys land that was formerly the site of the old Indian village of Kanahuaga. When the revolution broke out, Joseph Brant attached himself to the British cause, left the Mohawk Valley, went to Canada, and in 1776 went to England, where his education and his business and social connection with Sir William Johnson gave him free access to the nobility. In 1786 he again visited England. It is said that at a social function given in his honor, he attended in all his gorgeous savage apparel and was the center of attraction. During the evening he was approached by the Turkish ambassador in company with some ladies. The Turk, thinking him a savage, took hold of some portion of his apparel to examine it, when Brant turned upon him in anger, at the same time uttering a hideous war-whoop which so frightened the Turk that he fled precipitately, while many of the company ran from the room in consternation. The Earl of Warwick caused Romney, the eminent painter, to make a portrait of him which is said to have been an excellent likeness. In 1755, at the age of thirteen, he was with the Mohawks under King Hendrick, then a very old man, at the Battle of Lake George in the final ambush at Bloody Pond. He confessed to feeling so frightened at the first discharge that he clung to a tree for support, hardly able to grasp his gun. But this feeling soon changed, and he was able to continue the fight bravely and with calmness. We next hear of him at the Battle of Cedar Rapids in 1776, where a party of British regulars and Canadians under Foster and 500 Indians under the command of Brant attacked a small fortress defended by 390 Americans under Colonel Bedell, who, with but a small show of resistance, surrendered as soon as Captain Foster arrived. Meanwhile, a party of a 140 men under Major Henry Sherburne was sent by Arnold to reinforce the garrison. These were ambushed, and after a brave fight of an hour and a half they surrendered. Infuriated by the obstinate resistance of the Americans, the Indians butchered about twenty of their number. It is said that Brant tried to restrain the Indians in their fury, but was unable to do so although he was able to save the life of Captain McInstree after preparations had been made to torture him by fire. In May 1777, it is recorded in Campbell's Annals of Tryon County that Brant and his warriors made an attempt to cut off Cherry Valley. They approached from the east side and reconnoitered the settlement from a lofty hill. He was astonished to find a fortification and quite a large and well-armed garrison drilling on the esplanade in front of Judge Campbell's house. Considering it inexpedient to attack a well-armed garrison, 
he withdrew and the little village was saved from destruction at that time brant had been deceived however in regard to the effectiveness of the garrison as the well-armed soldiers that he supposed he saw from the high hills were the boys of the village drilling with wooden guns and swords but it is said that on their retreat they ambushed two officers one of whom lieutenant wormwood was killed and the other captured brant rushed from his concealment and scalped the lieutenant with his own hands in the same year brant was at fort schuyler in command of a party of senecas and also took part in the ambush and battle at oriskany previous to this he and his warriors joined sir john johnson and colonel john butler who had collected a large body of tories at oswego preparatory to a descent on the mohawk and schoharie settlements there guy johnson summoned a grand council of the six nations there was a pretty full attendance at the council but a large portion of the sachems adhered faithfully to a covenant of neutrality made with general schuyler at german flats in the spring of seventeen seventy seven the commissioner represented to the indians that the soldiers of the king were as numerous of the leaves of the forest that the rum of the king was as abundant as the waters of lake ontario and that if the indians would become his allies during the war they should never want goods or money tawdry articles such as scarlet cloths beads and trinkets were displayed and presented to the indians which pleased them greatly and they concluded an alliance by binding themselves to take up the hatchet against the patriots and continue their warfare until they were subdued to each man was then presented a brass kettle a suit of clothes a gun a tomahawk and scalping knife a piece of gold a quantity of ammunition and a promise of a bounty on every scalp he should bring in brant was thenceforth the acknowledged head of the six nations and soon after commenced his terrible career in the midst of the mohawk and schoharie valleys sir john johnson guy johnson colonel john butler and other tory commissioners bought the savages placed in their hands instruments of death bargained for the scalps of the patriots and inaugurated deeds of horror which culminated in the massacres of wyoming cherry valley schoharie and points on the mohawk river extending from indian castle to warren's bush and the isolated farms lying north and south of the river the oneidas fought with the patriots the indians of the lower mohawk castle were not particularly active against the patriots but the onondagas cayugas and particularly the Senecas, committed many an act of horror and earned their bounty of eight dollars for each scalp. We hear again of Brant in 1778, when, with three hundred Tories and one hundred and fifty Indians, he overran the settlements of German flats, when dwellings and barns were burned, grain destroyed, and stock captured. Neither scalps nor prisoners were secured, as the settlers took refuge in forts dayton and herkimer and the old stone church of german flats which had been built under the auspices and by the liberal contributions of sir william johnson 
it was during the spring of this year that brant destroyed springfield at the head of otsego lake it is said that every house was burned except one into which the women and children were gathered and kept unharmed lossing says the absence of tories in that expedition and the freedom to act as he pleased on the part of brant may account for this act of humanity the story of cherry valley and wyoming has been told in previous chapters brant was with walter n butler at cherry valley but has been wrongfully accused of atrocities at wyoming as the senecas at the massacre were under a chief called guianguata and captain brant was many miles away brant and his senecas were at the battle of coniwawa now elmira between general sullivan's army and tories and indians under command of sir john johnson the patriots were victorious the record says brant perceiving that all was lost raised the loud retreating cry una una and savages and tories in great confusion abandoned their works and fled across the river pursued by the victors this battle is known as the battle of chemong it is said that the victors killed and scalped eight of the indians in the pursuit in april seventeen eighty brant and his indians and sir john johnson and the tories destroyed harper's field and settlements in schoharie it was during this year that Little Falls, Canajoharie, and Fort Plain were destroyed. At the Battle of Clock's Field during the raid of the Mohawk Valley in October 1780, the Patriots were victorious. Brant was wounded in the heel but escaped. Johnson fled toward Onondaga Lake, where his boats had been concealed. When General Van Rensselaer heard of the concealment of the boats at that point, he dispatched a messenger to Captain Vroman, then in command at Fort Schuyler, ordering him to go with a strong detachment and destroy them. Vroman instantly obeyed. One of his men feigned sickness at Oneida and was left behind. He was there when Johnson arrived and informed him of Vroman's expedition. Brant and a body of Indians hastened forward, came upon Vroman and his party while at dinner, and captured the whole of them without firing a gun. Johnson had no further impediments in his way, and easily escaped to Canada by way of Oswego, taking with him Captain Vroman and his party prisoners, but leaving behind him a great number of his own men, and Tryon County enjoyed comparative repose through the remainder of the autumn and part of the winter. In January 1781, Brant was again on the warpath in the vicinity of Fort Schuyler. The slender barrier of the Oneida nation had been broken the previous year by driving that people upon the white settlements, and the warriors from Niagara had an unimpeded way to the Mohawk Valley. They were separated into small parties, annoying the settlements and occasionally capturing supplies some of these penetrated as far as schenectady probably to engage the oneidas who were located there at that time in september of this year brant was in the region now the state of ohio 
also in Kentucky, and together with McKee and a party of rangers, advanced on Boone's Fort and ambushed a party of horsemen, most of whom were killed or captured. This probably accounts for the fact that no mention is made of Brant's being present in the last raid through the Mohawk Valley and final dispersion of the rangers at the Battle of Johnstown. Here I would like to introduce an account of the raid of Ross and Walter N. Butler in October 1781, taken from an English report. Governor Haldeman at that time organized a second expedition to destroy the remaining settlements in the Mohawk Valley. Sir John Johnson was sent by the way of Crown Point in order to strike the valley from the east. Major Ross was to advance from Niagara by the way of Oswego. A violent gale prevented the detachments from Niagara from reaching Oswego until October 9, 1781. On the 17th, Major Ross left his boats with a guard in a creek falling into Lake Oneida and marched toward Otsego Lake. During the march, several prisoners were brought in from whom it was learned that Sir John Johnson had appeared at Crown Point, but that their own movements were as yet undiscovered. On the 23rd, they passed through Cherry Valley and on the evening of the following day reached Currytown. Owing to the roundabout way they had taken, their appearance was as unexpected as though they had sprung from the earth. As they hurried toward the Mohawk, they took a few prisoners, who stated that there were a thousand men assembled at Schenectady, five hundred at Schoharie, and that Colonel Willett was at Canajoharie with four hundred more. Dwaynesburg, or Warren's Bush, their objective point, lying centrally between these two garrisons, was deemed perfectly safe from attack. Major Ross perceived that he had no time to lose, as in a few hours his presence would be known at all these places. And although his men were already fatigued by eight days of steady marching in very bad weather, and much of the time ankle-deep in mud, he marched all night through incessant rain and over fourteen miles of the worst possible roads. His men struggled gallantly to keep together, and not more than a dozen fell behind, worn out by fatigue, and were abandoned to the tender mercies of the enemy. At three o'clock on the morning of the 25th, they forded the Schoharie, within gunshot of Fort Hunter, and two hours later halted near Warren's Bush, 5th Ward, Amsterdam, where they were allowed to rest on their arms until daybreak. The rangers and Indians were detailed to destroy the settlement, which was seven miles in length, while the remainder of the troops moved along the main road to support them. They found the place totally deserted, for the inhabitants had fled during the night. By ten o'clock they had advanced within twelve miles of Schenectady, and every building in sight was in flames, including three mills and a large public magazine. Ross then wheeled about and marched swiftly up the Mohawk, which he forded with much difficulty, as the river was swollen by the rain. A small party sallied from Fort Johnson to dispute their passage, but the officer in command was killed at the first fire and his men dispersed. 
the militia began to gather behind him and ross determined to retreat directly through the woods instead of attempting to return to his boats at oneida lake marching through the woods to johnstown he halted in the fields near johnson hall there colonel willett found him and gave battle which resulted in driving ross and his rangers and indians into the forest as told in the account of the battle of johnstown in a previous chapter although most of the raids in which brant participated were in the mohawk valley and the west there is an account of one as far east and south as minisink in orange county new york the story is only a repetition of many of the horrors that were perpetrated by the indians and tories during the revolution it was in seventeen seventy nine and this border settlement had been left unprotected by the withdrawal of count pulaski and his cavalry who had been ordered to south carolina during the night brant at the head of sixty indians and twenty-seven tories stole on the little town and fired several dwellings a small stockade fort a mill and twelve houses and barns were burned and a number of persons killed and taken prisoners the next day there was a gathering of many volunteers and soon a hundred and fifty-nine hardy men were clamoring to be led against the enemy colonel tustin who knew the prowess of brant opposed marching against a large body of the enemy with so small a force but the debate was cut short by major meeker mounting his horse flourishing his sword and shouting let the brave men follow me the cowards may stay behind these words aroused the assembly and the line of march was immediately formed there was the oft-repeated ambush the fierce fight at close quarters the exhaustion of ammunition massacre and only thirty of the brave men returned to tell the tale it is said that during the battle major wood made a masonic sign by accident which brant being a freemason recognized and heeded and his life was spared and he was kindly treated until the mohawk chief perceived he was not a mason after that brant treated him with contempt although he was afterward released and joined the fraternity by whose instrumentality his life was saved many tales are told of brant's savage cruelty and he is often spoken of as a monster but in almost every instance of horrible bloodthirsty indian atrocity the red men were accompanied by armed tories who assisted them in massacres while brant made every effort to restrain their savage instincts from early boyhood he was a companion of the whites and in his early manhood was an assistant of sir william johnson by birth he was a savage but by education a white man it is hard to believe that a man who had been cared for by sir william as though he had been his own son and who had learned from him the virtues of generosity and conciliation a man who had been placed in contact with the eminent white men of that period in business matters one who was a friend of dominie stuart urquhart and kirkland and assisted them in the translation of portions of the gospel and prayer-book into mohawk and exerted himself in many ways for the spiritual welfare of his people 
could degenerate into the savage that early historians have pictured him. The Scottish poet Thomas Campbell makes the Oneida say, in Gertrude of Wyoming, This is no time to fill the joyous cup. The mammoth comes, the foe, the monster Brant, with all his howling, desolating band, scorning to wield the hatchet for his bribe. Gainst Brant himself I went to battle forth, accursed Brant. Brant was not at Wyoming, but many miles distant, and although Campbell wrote to Brant's son John a letter of apology and regret, his poems are still published with that damning falsehood. The bribe came from the British through Sir John and Guy Johnson in the bounty of eight dollars for every scalp, and was the incentive for the murder of many helpless men, women, and children that Brant was powerless to prevent. The Battle of Minisink was not a massacre, but the extermination of a body of brave, stubborn colonists who chose to die rather than surrender, although Brant offered good treatment if they would lay down their arms, but warned them of the fierceness of the thirst for blood that actuated his warriors. After the peace of 1783 he visited England, and on returning to America devoted himself to the social and religious improvement of the Mohawks, who were settled at Grand River, Brant County, Canada, and on the Bay of Quinte. To Brant was entrusted the care of the silver communion set given to the Mohawks by Queen Anne in 1712 for use in Queen Anne's Chapel at Fort Hunter. Since that time its care has been transmitted to successive members of his family. In 1898 I met the great-granddaughter of Joseph Brant in company with about forty members of the Iroquois who were in Albany to deposit some valuable wampum belts in the New York State Museum. Her name was Mrs. John Loft, and the babe at her breast was the great-great-grandson of Joseph Brant. Brant held a colonel's commission in the English Army, but he is generally known as Captain Brant. He died at his residence at the head of Lake Ontario, November 24, 1807, at the age of sixty-five years. As the name of Fort Schuyler appears frequently in these pages, it may be of interest to state where it was situated. I will begin by saying that there were two Fort Schuylers in western and one in northern New York. During the last French War, as it was called, a number of forts were built along the Mohawk Valley between 1755 and 1758. In 1758 a fort was constructed where the city of Utica now stands, and named Fort Schuyler for General Peter Schuyler. Previous to 1710 a fort was erected on the site of Fort Anne, and named Fort Peter Schuyler, which was destroyed at that date by Colonel Schuyler, as it was thought worthless unless garrisoned. The Fort Schuyler at Utica had been allowed to decay and in 1777 was only a fortress in ruins. At the same date that the Utica Fort was built, 1758, a fort was erected at Rome, New York, and named Fort Stanwix. In 1776 it was repaired and named Fort Schuyler, 
in honor of General Philip Schuyler of revolutionary fame. In 1781, this fort, noted for its connection with the Battle of Oriskany, was destroyed by fire and flood and never rebuilt. End of chapter 15 Recording by Roger Moline